think about <clears throat> the most important fact of my life is that Jesus loves me. Now I'm telling you what, it, it wouldn't matter what else was true of my life if that weren't true. But praise God, it is true. He loved you first. And the good thing about Christ is, having loved you, he will love you to the end. I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of Scripture. It's 1 Samuel chapter 18. And we'll see in the first five verses, just preface our reading, you're going to see two responses to David in these verses. Saul, who we've talked a lot about, and then Jonathan, who we've not talked much about. And go on and tell you that, that Saul's response to David and Jonathan's response to David are the models of how people who are around the things of Jesus respond to Jesus. One is a picture of salvation. One is not. So again, David, real historical mighty king of Israel, but God has put forth David as a picture of the real king Jesus. And friends, before I even read this scripture, I'm going to tell you, everybody is going to surrender and submit to the real king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 1 of chapter 18, remember this is right after David has defeated Goliath. Chapter 18, verse 1, as soon as he, that's David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Father, now we ask for help to understand the scripture accurately, and my prayer is, is what your heart really is, and having the Holy Spirit inspire this scripture is the message now that we proclaim Help us to see how this is truth about Jesus and whose name we pray. Amen. Hey, well, quick word of reminder. Um, when Jesus uh, walked out of the grave on the third day, the Bible records that he did something that day. He took a long walk with uh, two witnesses, as the scripture says, on, their, on, on the road. And as they got to the end of the walk, at first these two didn't recognize that Jesus was Jesus and then the Bible says he opened up their minds to understand the Scripture. And beginning with Moses, he explained to them all the things concerning himself. In other words, all the Old Testament is about Jesus ultimately. Noah's Ark is about Jesus, right? There's only one place, not a bunch of places, one place to be safe from judgment. The Exodus is about Jesus, the only way out of bondage is through a mediator. God has to do that. And once you get out of bondage, his call on your life is that you'd be made holy 
in Christ's likeness. And David, his whole life is a picture of Jesus. When he defeats Goliath, that is not a story about how you can just face your fears. No, it's a story that everyone faces an enemy that they cannot overcome. And the father from Bethlehem, since his son from Bethlehem, who for all outward appearances doesn't look all that impressive, but stands before the enemy and says, you who have defied God, I will strike down. Christ has overcome sin, death, and the grave forever. He's the only one who can. And now we have this picture before us. Have you ever... uh, heard a saying that the more you hear it, even though everybody kind of knows it, you realize it's not actually true. I went to school in, uh, in the era where second grade, if I'm remembering it correctly, this is what we did back then. They'd have all the students to stand and line up around the walls of the classroom. And then they would call on you to spell a word in front of everybody. If you spelled the word correctly, you got to continue standing there. But if you spelled the word wrong, in front of all of your friends, you would have to walk the walk of shame and sit back down at your desk and never for the rest of your life forget the word that you misspelled. Now, in all humility, when I was younger, one thing that I could do fairly well was spell. And so I made it to the finals. Me and the other young boy in our class, through process of elimination, we were the last two standing. And I can remember, second grade, I was asked to spell the word neighbor. Like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this thought came in my mind. Here's what it was. You've probably heard this. I, before E, except after heard it. You've heard it. You know it. Some well-meaning teacher somewhere came up with that saying, and the reason you know it is it's pretty easy to remember. It rhymes, I before E, except after C. And that thought came in my mind, and here's all the classmates standing there. And then, maybe under the sovereignty of the Lord, I looked at my friend beside of me, and his name was Keith. How about that? Keith. And now, I'm stressed out, because I remember the rule, but I think to myself, Keith, it's not K-I-E-T-H, it's, it's the E before the I. So neighbor, now I've got this gulp in my throat, you know what I mean? Everybody's staring, and then it gets, I go on long enough that the teacher has to say, okay, Brandon, and I just said, it. I, I think neighbor is E-I even though it's not a C, so I, sp- I spelled it correctly. I still lost, I mean, is what ultimately happens. But now you track with me for a moment. I'm trying to be your friend when I tell you it's not always I before E, except after C. Believe me. It is a deficient rule. It is a counterfeit rule but there are things that are not true but if you hear them often enough we think they are true Saul has an approach 
to David. That is not a picture of salvation. However, we live in a generation, if someone does unto Jesus what Saul has done unto David, we very frequently call that salvation. Here's what I mean. Saul has a place for David in his house. He has a place. This is what the Bible just said. Verse 2, Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And Saul, hey, he's fine with David playing his music. He's even fine with assigning David some of the battles. He puts David over some things. And to double down on the danger, especially in light of Saul who was a people pleaser, when Saul does those things, it was good in the sight of all the people. But friends, here's the real question. Is is it good in the sight of the Lord? Because Jonathan... His approach to David is not, David, I'll give you a place in the house. Jonathan's approach to David is, this is your house. I'm not going to set you over some things. I recognize who you really are. And this matters, friends, because as gently or as clearly as I can say it, kind of making a little bit of room for Jesus in your life, is not the same as submitting and surrendering to him. As soon as Jonathan heard him, something went on inside of Jonathan. Did you read it? Something way down deep. Heard what? We're in chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as Jonathan heard David speaking, what had David said? Chapter 17, verse 58, Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. So we want to walk through these verses together. And we're going to ask three questions and then answer them from the passage. And again, it has everything to do with your approach to the real king, the Lord Jesus. Let's, let's ask what Jonathan, what did Jonathan recognize? Secondly, what did Jonathan do? And then number three, what did Jonathan face? Just so we understand historically, who is Jonathan? He's Saul's son, and therefore, he's the one in line to be king next. So the presumptive king recognizes David is the real king. And y'all, that is a big deal. So let's walk through it by first asking this question, what does Jonathan recognize? He recognized it again, something right away. As soon as the words come out of David's mouth, uh, there's not a lot of deliberation. Hey, this is what I really appreciate. There wasn't polling the audience, right? Everybody, did everybody else, anybody else hear what uh, David just said? He doesn't go one by one and ask him, hey, do you recognize that he's the king? As soon as David speaks, Jonathan responds. And it's something significant. And where is it happening according to the Bible? It was happening on the inside at what we might call the level of the soul. You don't have a soul, you are a soul. We live in a culture that emphasizes the outer person. 
God's already told us that earlier in 1 Samuel. Man looks on the outward appearance. God actually looks at the heart. What, what, who did Jonathan here speak? Let me answer that question in accordance with where we've recently been. And you think about it with me. Who did Jonathan here speak? He heard speak a shepherd sent by his father from Bethlehem to defeat the enemy no one else could. A deliverer who looked humble and even weak in appearance, but who was empowered by the Spirit of God. The son who came to help his brothers, but was received by them with disdain and ridicule. And I'm just emphasizing that so we're all on the same page that David is pointing us to Jesus. Have you ever heard the living God call you to recognize who Jesus really is? What did Jonathan hear him say? I'm the son of your servant, Jesse. Now, we haven't read all the verses leading up to this, but what we do know is that Jonathan had humility and was interested in the things of God. And I don't want to say something in the passage that's not here, but is it possible? Because you remember Samuel, he pretty publicly went to Bethlehem, pretty publicly anointed one of Jesse's sons as king. Is it possible that Samuel has heard the report that there's a new king anointed among Jesse's sons, and when David says, that's who I am, that Jonathan recognized. And friends, it's not just about what Jonathan heard. It is also what he had just seen. And what had he just seen? Oh, Goliath, defying the armies of Israel over and over and over. And what he had just seen with his own eyes is David standing there and saying, I am going to take you down and then doing so. Friends, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So hear, Christ is the deliverer. Christ alone can defeat sin, death, and the grave forever. He is the only one who can. Have you seen with the eyes of faith what he has done upon the cross, shedding his blood for your sins? And Have you heard he is the real king? Jonathan recognized that David was the true king chosen by God. Y'all, Saul, Saul, that's a hard phrase, Saul saw David as someone he could use to further his own kingdom. Jonathan saw David as the one who will rightfully sit upon the throne. And those are two totally different things. It's already happening. You can see it right here. And as we continue through the life of David, there's a split. And the split is there are some who are going to be loyal to Saul and follow him. And then there are some who are going to be loyal to to David and follow him. And the split is so significant, it reaches all the way into Saul's house. It's what Jesus said. I'm going to turn people against each other. The closest human relationship Jonathan has is with his own dad, Saul. And it's reality that you can't live in two kingdoms at once. And Jonathan is making it clear where his loyalty lies. And it's not just his loyalty. Let's read what the word says. Happening way down or deep in the inside. Look at the phrase, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. That's a great command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and, and strength. Saul looks upon David as someone who could advance Saul's kingdom. 
Jonathan looked upon David as the one whose kingdom would advance. So Saul and Jonathan, we track it, they're looking at the same person, but they are not seeing the same thing. When the Bible says in verse 1 that Jonathan loved him as his own soul, that's a, it's a love of loyalty. I kind of hate that I even have to go into this, but such as 2023, it's not a romantic love. You probably hear that in some places that you go and from some teachers that teach. The, the Bible couldn't make this more clear. The most obvious place, it's clear throughout, but the most obvious place is when Jonathan dies, here's what David says. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on the high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. In other words, David contrasts the love of loyalty that he and Jonathan share with romantic love. And any honest, humble reader who's not taking something in applying it into the Scripture, but has the humility to say, let Scripture speak to me, would know that. It actually underscores this tragic fact is that we've kind of forgotten how to be friends with one another. We'll save this for another sermon in the future, but David and Jonathan, their friendship is one of the things that most people in their life right now are missing because we kind of forgot how to be friends with one another, to care about the person at this level. Saul only cares about himself, and he will have a place for David in his life to the extent that David does what Saul wants him to do. And again, y'all, that's a fair description about how so many people approach God. There's a place for God in my life as long as I'm the one giving the orders. God doesn't take orders from anybody. Jonathan makes a covenant. That's the word used. It's not a surface relationship. This is deep loyalty. You might want to think about it in terms of of, uh, your walk with the Lord. Are you loyal to him? When a decision has to be made, I'm going to go uh, this way or that way. Are are you loyal to, to the Lord? Jonathan will be more loyal to David than he will be to his own self. And again, that's especially striking when we understand the position Jonathan is in. He's the presumptive king. He's the next one in line. This is not a slight adjustment to his life. This changes everything. Hey, last week we said the best thing Goliath could have done when David stood before him would have been to get down on his knees, lay down his sword, take off his armor and say, David, I yield to you. But do you see that is what Jonathan does do. He kneels before him. He says, you are the king. That's what Jonathan does. Maybe we think about it this way as well. You see in verse 5, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. Again, Saul's got a place for David. David I'm sorry, Saul set David over the men of war. Jonathan is a man of war who sets himself under David. So when it comes to Jesus, which one do you do? Do you set him over some things? Jesus, bless my health. But I'm going to see to my money. (laughs) Jesus, can you help me deal with this stressful circumstance? But this command you've actually given your people to go into all the world and make disciples. 
Well, that's for somebody else to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? Saul says, I got a spot for you, little shepherd boy. Fight my battles. Jonathan says, I surrender to you. One of the helpful words is that little bitty verb in verse 1, knit. Jonathan's soul is knit to David's soul. Got any knitters in here? Not a knitter. What, what is, uh, especially back then, what, what is knit? What, what is knitting? It's, it's personal work, right? It's not a machine doing this. It's the same word David uses when he talks about uh, you knit me together in my mother's womb, right? What it, what it means is now David and Jonathan are united in purpose. They're inseparable. Where you'll find David, you'll find Jonathan, So again, friends, in your life, don't go through life saying, God, here's what I'm going to do. Would you come bless it? That's not someone who's been knit to the heart of God. What what we do in submission to the king is we say, here, God, is what you've said in your word that you bless and you do. So I'm not asking you to come bless me. I'm asking what you bless and I'm going to go do it. It's a totally different dynamic, isn't it? Where in the world you would find Jesus, would we find you? Jesus says, I'm the one who'd leave the 99 to go after the one. As he does that, would we find you? Would we, would we find us as his people, as, as his church? You see, Saul's trying to maintain a kingdom. David is trying to obey the Lord. Those are two big Hugely different things. It's matters for church life because churches can get in that situation. We just want to maintain things as they are. Or are we going to say, I'll follow the Lord and obey Him no matter what the cost? Question number one has been, what did, they, uh, what did Jonathan recognize? Can we answer it simply and succinctly? Jonathan recognized that David is the king. Next, what did Jonathan do? It's one thing to say something. It's another thing to live in response to it, right? Hey, uh, this is the reality. Whatever's going on at the level of your soul, it's going to show up on the outside. Can I get an amen? I mean, if God's doing something on the inside, it's going to show up on the outside. And by the way, if Satan is doing something on your inside, it is going to show up on the outside. Uh, over time, you know the, the condition of your soul on the basis of what you do regularly and often. So what does Jonathan do? We get the actions after he makes a covenant Jonathan does some things. I love the first uh, phrase here. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe. Let's notice that what begins on the inside of Jonathan does not remain on the inside. It is not Jonathan's approach to say, yep, David's the king, but I'm going to keep that to myself. That's just something personal between me and David. That's not going to make any sense, would it? Jonathan, the first thing he does is he strips himself of his robe. And I really want to underscore the fact that the covenant that Jonathan made is a covenant on the basis of love. You know what a covenant is, right? Covenant's not a commitment. A commitment you just kind of make, and if everything works out, I'll keep it. No, a covenant is for life. And what Jonathan is saying is, I'm making a covenant with you, and it's on the basis of loyal love. It's not a covenant of or a commitment of convenience. 
It's about devotion for the rest of life. Jonathan's serious about this. He says, I'm, I, I am renouncing any claim I have on the throne. I acknowledge David as the true and rightful king. And Jonathan has a complete change of identity. The robe is the marker. Jonathan would have had a robe that nobody else had. You see this frequently in the, uh, in the Old Testament in particular. For example, the life of Joseph. Remember what, what was the whole conflict in the family was that Joseph got a coat, a robe of many colors, right? And that robe said something about Joseph, and his brothers didn't like it. And Joseph, another awesome Old Testament picture of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. The coat, the robe rather, uh, you might remember parable of the prodigal son, right? Long way off, his father saws him, has compassion on him, and runs to him, embraces him. And what does he say? Get the coat. Put it around him. It's, it, it's a marker of identity. This is the son. This is the father's son. This is the presumptive king. And, and uh, Jonathan stripped himself of that robe. It's not all he does, though. He yields to David by giving him his armor. This is really the posture of a, a defeated foe. Again, this is what Goliath should have done, but he didn't do. So can we make the obvious point? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's just a matter of how you lay your armor down. Jonathan does so humbly and willingly. He gives up his armor. He gives up his sword. He gives up his bow. He gives up his belt. It is surrender. But Jonathan does not surrender to David as his enemy. He surrenders to David as his friend. There is no such thing as a salvation in Christ that is not a surrender to Christ. Jesus did not come into the world and conquer sin, death, and the grave so that you could accept him as your Savior. I always get nervous. I always get nervous when we start using words that the Bible doesn't use. Confess, repent, submit, surrender. Those are the verbs the New Testament uses for you to come to faith in Christ. Jesus didn't do all that so you could kind of live the life you were going to plan to live anyway, just with a little Jesus added to it. You understand what I'm saying? Can you see the entire trajectory of Jonathan's life has changed? His present, his future, his soul, his actions, his determination, his battles, who he serves, who he loves. Everything about his life has changed. Far too often I hear testimonies of so-called conversion that have a lot more to do in common with Saul than it has in common with Jonathan, as outlined in this passage. Saul has a place for David in his life. Saul is good with David having a part of his life. But he has no plans to surrender or submit to David. I mean, do you take the commands of Christ seriously? Or do you think that they are suggestions? Because Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. And do you see, that is what Jonathan is doing. He's denying himself. My armor, my sword, they're yours to command. In the age that we live in, that is all about self-exaltation, Jesus calls you to self-denial. You know, you don't have to waste your life trying to get in to know all about your sinful self. Jesus said, deny yourself. That's what Jonathan does. He lays aside all his claims to the throne and says his surrendered life is David's to direct. He does not approach David as his military advisor or team captain. He approaches David as his sovereign king. And that brings us to the third question. 
That's what did Jonathan face. And in doing so, he lived an easy and comfortable life and lived happily ever after, right? No. Jonathan's got stress in his closest relationships from here on out. His ultimate loyalty. Is it going to go with Saul or is it going to go with David? If you're going to summarize the rest of Jonathan's life, you could do so with just one word, conflict. He's got conflict with the Philistines, Israel's enemies. He's got conflict with his own family. He's got enemies uh, uh, that are coming at him from outside his house. He's got enemies that are coming from his own household. Conflict in the most important relationship he had, his relationship with his own dad. Some of you might know what that's like. To face the disapproval, the anger, or the outright hostility of parents. Or people you care about deeply on account of your loyalty to Christ. When someone else demands to be most prominent in your life, but you are most devoted to Christ, there can be conflict. So you need to take inventory of this, friends. A boyfriend, a girlfriend does not have more claim on your life than Christ if you belong to him. A child, a parent, a sibling. There can only be one king. And surrendering to David means David's enemies become Jonathan's enemies. But I will tell you, if you've got to choose, and by the way, you have to choose, between conflict with Saul or conflict with David, you choose conflict with the world every single time. Because David Ultimately, Jesus is the real king. You see this in John the Baptist, don't you? Life of conflict. How about the apostles? Peter, James, John, Mary Magdalene. In the Old Testament, Esther, Ruth, Abraham, Moses. Lives full of conflict. But it will also mean when David is the king, that David's kindness to Jonathan, will extend to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, as we will see. When you surrender to the king, the Lord Jesus, he blesses, he doesn't curse. I'll put a passage of scripture on the screen. It's the words of the king. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is after he has come out of the grave. His Goliath moment, right? The enemy is defeated. And he walks out of the grave and he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What is Jesus' claim? He's the king. He doesn't have some authority. He has all authority. He doesn't have all authority some places. He has authority all places in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he's about to tell his people to do something. Go therefore and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is the command of our Savior? To make disciples. So a Saul-like approach to Jesus would hear that command, raise their eyebrows a little bit and say, that's interesting, but I think I'll do something else. Replacing the command to make disciples with any number of things. And this happens way 
more often in the modern church as we make life about serving ourselves rather than reaching people who've not yet surrendered to Christ. Mission gets replaced again with maintenance. And he says, baptizing them. Now, you know, Baptist preacher, right? But what Jesus is saying, baptism, well, think about it this way. When Jonathan comes to David and recognizes he's the real king, he does something, right? It's not just something that stays on the inside. There's an outward act that he does on the outside that mirrors what's happened on the inside. And that's what baptism ultimately is. You're denying self. You're stripping yourself of all claims to your own life. You're going under the water. You're coming out of the water. It's a picture. I am dying to an old way of life, and I'm raised up. I hope if you've been baptized, you knew that's what you were doing. If you've not been baptized, I need you to know that that's the command Jesus gives. So that you too, like in the Old Testament picture, Jonathan surrendering to Jesus, the New Testament command to be baptized, it's this kind of the same heart behind it. You're recognizing, I'm dying to an old way of life. I'm raised up to a new way of life. And I'll just say quickly, but parenthetically, if you've not been baptized as a follower of Jesus with that heart behind it, I would love, love for us to sit down and have a conversation about it. Because it matters. It matters how we identify with Jesus. You know, Saul's approach was, I'm not ever doing that. Give him my robe. <laughs> Give him my sword. And then, having been raised up in baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. Well, language kind of changes over time or, or meanings of words. And so I think sometimes far too often that word observe comes across to us in 2023 in a way that's not intended when Jesus originally said that because we say observe is kind of a weak, you know, I'm just going to observe what's going on. Now, this word observe means I take it seriously and it is the purpose of my life to keep, to obey to loyally and lovingly do what I've been commanded to do. So we don't even need to zoom out of this passage of Scripture. He gave us two commands. Be baptized, make disciples. Have you done those things and are you doing those things? Because if we've surrendered to him as king, that's what he's told us to do. Now here's the good news. Here's the good news. Most every battle Jonathan fights, David's right there with him. It's a picture for us as well. God's not saying, now you go do those things, because he just says at the end, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you. Knit together in such a way that wherever you find Jesus at work, you're there too. Hey friends, is that, has that been a pretty accurate picture of your life and surrendering to Jesus. This picture of Jonathan surrendering to him, acknowledging that he's the king. I belong to you. Last point of emphasis. But I think it so lines up with all that we've been talking about. You see why Jonathan did it? He loved him. He loved him. He loved him. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him more than your own life? If you love me, keep my commandments, right? Let's be freed up. Don't keep the commandments so he'll love you. He loved you first. He'll love you always.
your joy to belong to him? Have you come to a point in your life where you said, it's better that I surrender to the king than I spend my life on the fool's errand of trying to be king of my own quickly fading kingdom? In other words, you're like Saul (laughs) or are you like Jonathan? Let's stand together. We're going to pray together and then we'll respond uh, together. You'll pray with me. Have you ever surrendered to King Jesus? Jonathan surrendered to David after he saw what he'd done and heard what he said. Have you ever seen by faith what Christ has done for you upon the cross and in triumph raising, being raised from the dead? Have you heard him say, repent and follow me? If you've never surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus, it'd be my joy to speak to you. Here in just a few moments, I'll stand right here at the front. It'd be my joy for us to talk, to pray. Now, and I just want you to know, anytime, most anytime. But often, right as you're thinking through the things of Scripture, not in a manipulative way, but, but if you delay obey, obedience, sometimes uh, you keep delaying. Maybe you're a follower of the Lord Jesus. You sincerely and humbly have repented and trusted him. Man, that old nature in us is so persistent. you still got an inner soul that's been rising up, still want to put yourself first. Be a great opportunity to, to be still before the Lord and take inventory. Search me and know me, oh God. See if there be any wicked way it be. Lead me in the way everlasting. So that's what we ask, Father. Now we want to respond to, uh, to the Scripture. We believe the Lord Jesus is King. And uh, as you graciously lead us, that we would respond in humble obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.